0: So as I said, I want to ask a question for starters. What is this? Can you tell by looking? Is it a sunrise or is it a sunset? It's hard to tell, isn't it? Let me give you a clue. Here's another picture. This one was taken 30 minutes after the one we were just looking at. So what is it? It's a sunrise, right? What are we learning here? We looked at the first picture. You had a decision to make. Was it sunrise or was it sunset? Couldn't tell. But after enough time went by, you were able to see. Yes, I know what that is. It's a sunrise. Well, that reminds me of a scripture that I want us to take kind of as a theme for our lesson this afternoon. The wise man said, The path of the just is like the shining sun that shines ever brighter unto that perfect day. Now, the way of the wicked is like darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. So what does this mean? Well, the impact of many decisions is far-reaching. And it's not apparent at the moment how this is going to work out. Time is often required to reveal the wisdom or the folly of the decisions that we make. So, And that's really what we're talking about today, is making decisions today that affect tomorrow. How are we going to do that? What is required? Because this is, presents a problem. We've got to make a decision today, but the consequences are way out here. They're in tomorrow, into the future. How are we going to resolve that? Well, wisdom, foresight is required to answer these kinds of questions, to deal with this problem. How are we going to resolve this? I remind you of one of the parables that Jesus told of the unjust steward. In this parable, there was a man that knew he was going to lose his job. And he was very ruthless and unscrupulous, but he made sure that once he lost his job, he was taken care of. He was going to be okay. Now, Jesus doesn't commend the way that he goes about in actually taking care of himself, but what he does commend is that he used foresight. He planned ahead and made sure that when he lost his job, he was taken care of. And that Jesus commends and uses as an example. So there may be somebody somebody here today, sitting in the audience? Probably not, but I'm sure there's somebody somewhere who's thinking about wisdom, thinking about forethought, thinking about planning these kinds of things we're discussing, and they're saying, yes, yes, I know. I'm going to deal with that someday. I'm not going to worry about that now. I want to have fun. I want to have a good time. I'm not going to worry about these things. I want to remind you of this passage from Proverbs. Now, often in the book of Proverbs, wisdom is uh, personified as a woman. Because wisdom is something that's very attractive. It's very desirable. And the best thing that we can come up with is this beautiful woman. And she's calling to you and she's reaching out. And, and she's calling people to come and be wise and to listen to her. And listen to what she says to these people who rejected her. Because I have called and you refused, I have stretched out my hand and no one regarded. Because you disdained all my counsel and would have none of my rebuke, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your terror comes. then they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, therefore they shall eat the fruit of their own ways. And to me, that's a very scary passage. It's very scary to think that this decisions I'm making today may put me in this situation in the future. That's very scary. It's scary to think that I have that responsibility and I have this potential for both bad or good. But to me, the scariest part is what it says, is they will not find me. Being at that point and being alone. Having no one to turn to, having no one to ask for help, having no one to give you answers. Wisdom will abandon you if you do not seek it. So, foresight must be applied so that we can make preparations for tomorrow We don't want to be like these people who wait till the last minute until it's too late. So what we need to do is we need to receive wisdom and instruction today. Now why would we want to do that? Why is wisdom so important and so beneficial? One of the themes that you'll see that we kind of hit over and over again through this lesson is we don't want to just say, don't do this, don't do that, this is bad, this will destroy you. We want to also say, this is good, this is right, this is wholesome, this is what you want to do. So you'll see us ping-ponging back and forth between what not to do and what to do. The, the condemnation and the blessings that come from the decisions that we can make. So what can wisdom do for us? It brings glory, honor, peace, joy, life, salvation. And then one of the most fulfilling blessings in life is being able to give that to somebody else. To take all the things that you've learned and benefited from and be able to hand that to somebody else so they can also share in those blessings. I think this verse says it well how important it is. Get wisdom. Get understanding. Do not forget nor turn away from the words of my mouth. Again, this is Lady Wisdom. Uh, Excuse me, this is actually uh, Solomon, the Father speaking. Do not forget nor turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her. That's Lady Wisdom. And she will preserve you. Love her and she will keep you. Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore get wisdom. And in all you're getting, get understanding. When you walk, your steps will not be hindered. And when you run, you will not stumble. Take firm hold of instruction. Do not let go. Keep her, for she is your life. And that's so important. You know, when, whether I'm driving to work, or if I'm getting some project done, or Maybe just different things in life. I love it when things just work out smooth. You know, you hit all the lights green and and everything just works out just nicely. It's very annoying when things get in your way and slow you down. But this is not a game. This is not driving. This is not not what we're talking about. We're talking about life. Lay hold of her. Keep hold of her. She is your life. She is what's going to save you. So, with that in mind, I want to ask one of our next set of questions. What are the most important decisions that you have to make in your life? And that's one of the important things we need to decide first. If you don't know which decisions you have to be making, you're going to have a hard time figuring out what the answers are. So what are the most important decisions you have to make that we're going to apply wisdom to? Not all at once. Obey Obey the gospel. Becoming a Christian. Crucial, crucial. What else? Who to marry? Very, very good. Withstanding temptation. Avoiding sin. Overcoming sin. Very important. Main part of being a Christian. What else? Hmm? What job you should get. Great. You guys have read my mind. So here are the three most important questions that I want to talk about. Now I'm going to hit John's in the middle of of the first question. First of all, we want to talk about the ultimate decision The most important question, the most important decision that you have to make. And then building on that, we're going to talk about choosing godly friends, who to marry, who is going to be our spouse. And then lastly, we're going to talk about work, leaving home, getting a job, picking a career. All of these we want to discuss this morning. So, what is the most important question? Becoming a Christian, obeying the gospel. Choosing to be a committed Christian. And by that we mean not somebody who just comes and sits on the pew and is here twice on Sunday and once on Wednesday night. We mean somebody who's wholehearted, single-hearted, devoted Christian. Somebody who's committed to this. It's not just a hobby or something they do because it makes their parents feel better. It's something they do because they believe in it. So, why is that important? Because wisdom begins with God. Answering these questions, the tools that we need, they all start with God. And if we don't have that, we're going to have a hard time answering our questions that are as they need to be done. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Psalms 127.1, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Unless you start with God, unless you have His blessings and His approval, you're wasting your time. You may build something, it may look great and be appealing to you, but it's a house of cards. And one day the storm's going to come, and that house is going to fall down. If you don't start with God, and you do not build it according to His plans and with His approval. So, application. How does wisdom begin with God? For you, personally, how do you make your wisdom begin with God? Well, the first thing you need to do that we talked about already, you need to convert now and become a young Christian. And here I'm emphasizing the idea of young. As more time goes by, the more possibility you have to bring destruction into your life, into the life of those around you, and the more hardened you will become. It will become harder and harder for you to become a Christian as you get older and older. And you will have, when that time comes, if it comes, you will have more regrets. Wish I had done this earlier. In just about every congregation, you're going to find some older people that became Christians late in life because that's when the gospel found them. If you talk to them, they'll say, wow, I just wish I had known earlier. If I'd only known 20 years ago what I knew at this time. The, again, the wise man in Solomon talks about the evil days coming and as they get older, they become worse and worse, more and more difficult and the soul becomes harder and harder as time goes by. Continue in daily Bible study. That's your lifeline. The scriptures is your bread. It's how you access God and how your spirit and how your soul becomes stronger. If you stop reading the Bible and stop studying daily, you might as well just stop eating your food daily. Just try to coast for a while on today's lunch, for example. You're not going to last too long. Spiritually, it's the exact same way. If you stop studying, you're not going to last very long. But you can't just be calling out words. Bible study is not just calling out words and reading. You need to be very involved in thinking about what you're reading. You need to be praying about it. You need to be meditating upon it. And you need to be seek in these prayers, seeking God's wisdom and asking for Him for His wisdom. In Matthew 26, 41, the Lord speaks to his apostles and says, Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. Prayer is one of the key tools that we have to keep us out of temptation. And when we are faced with temptation, it's one of the key tools to help us overcome. So, as part of your Bible study, consider relevant Bible examples. Just about any problem you can think of, there's going to be somebody, as you're going to see today, who's had to deal with some kind of similar problem. Look to them for guidance as an example. And then lastly, eliminate any anti-wisdom character flaws. Proverbs 14:16 says that the wise, they fear, they depart from evil. But... The fool rages and is self-confident. Have you ever talked to somebody and try, and there's been something you were concerned about and they just get mad at you? And you can't tell them anything. They just get madder and madder. And then you try to ask them nicely and kindly. And then they just scoff at you and just blow you off. You can't talk to a person like that who's just filled with anger that you would even approach them and say there's something possibly wrong with them. Same thing with the self-confident person could be somebody here today. I don't see anybody that remotely looks like this. But you've seen people, they're more concerned with their hair and the time. And ah, I don't have time for this. I've heard all of this before. I, I've got it under control. This guy doesn't know what he's talking about. That's a self-confident person. One of the passages I didn't put in here, but I think it's very relevant. Uh, one of the chapters in Proverbs labors on and on to talk about how terrible a fool is. He's going to hurt himself. He's going to hurt other people. He's going to kill himself, he's going to kill other people, and you think by you go as you go through this list of all these things that a fool does, that fool has to be the worst person in the world, the most destructive, most stupid. And at the very end it says, You see somebody who's self confident or righteous in their own eyes, there's more hope for a fool than for him. Do not be self confident, self righteous, and think that you've got all the answers. These things will prohibit you and keep wisdom from sinking into you as you study it and think about it. So again, putting this in application. We can spend a lot of time here. This is one of the places I hope you'll look at these verses and think about these. But priority number one, first thing you need to do, love God first. He has to be first and foremost in your life. Matthew 6.33 talks about seeking God and His kingdom and His righteousness first. That's our top priority as Christians. And that is key. Everything else that we're going to talk about is going to just naturally flow from that. And if we're having trouble getting to these conclusions, it's probably because the first one's not quite right. So, we need to also decide absolutely. Make up our mind definitively. This is who I am. This is what I'm going to do. James 1 talks about the double-minded man. He can't make up his mind. I may go this way, but I may go this way too. He's of two minds. He can't make up his mind. And he says, that person is unstable in all of his ways. He's just going to flip-flop back and forth. And if you find yourself flip-flopping back and forth, you need to think about that. What are my priorities? Who am I really? You need to decide absolutely and definitively. And then part of doing that is counting the costs, Looking down the road and saying, if I make this decision, I may have to give up. You know, Tracy and Eric and a lot of these guys have talked about maybe relationships with parents, maybe relationships with friends. There may be different sacrifices we have to make. And we need to look and plan ahead and say, okay, I'm willing to make these sacrifices before we get into that situation. Because then it will be very difficult and almost too late. Count the costs, Form specific plans. In Daniel 1, we read about Daniel purposing in his heart. He decided in his mind, this is who he was and this was what he was going to do. And that was part of what strengthened him, enabled him to overcome the temptation of the the king's foods that he set before him, the unclean foods. And then Eric also mentioned this, Romans 13, about not making laying traps for ourselves, not making provisions for the flesh that you may sin. It's one of the key lessons of becoming a Christian is not to repeat Eric's lesson. But we're not to be overcome sin by just meeting it head on and just fighting it and just head-butting it and we're just going to overpower it. No, 99% of the time, you overcome sin... By just avoiding it altogether. Just by sidestepping it and letting it go by. Letting it get out of its way. It's the the flight versus fight mentality. And so, you want to avoid laying traps for yourselves. Sometimes uh, we do that subconsciously. And then also, jettison weights that hinder. That may be sin. There may be some sin that sets us up for a bigger sin. It could be that maybe it's not something that's sinful, but maybe it's something that puts us in a position where we're easily tempted. Well, if that's the case, it may not be wrong in and of itself, but if it always ends up leading us into sin, then we've got to stop doing that. Remember what Jesus said about if your eye offends you or your hand offends you, what do you need to do? Cut it off. Pluck it out. Get rid of it. Those things may not be bad in and of themselves, but if they lead you to bad, you need to get rid of them because it's not worth having those things and then missing out on heaven. So, But the other passage that I really had in mind is in, I can't remember now if it's in, First Timothy or Second Timothy. But Paul there speaking to Timothy says that a soldier doesn't entangle himself in the affairs of this life. There's lots of good things in this world. T-ball coach, soccer coach, guitar lessons, karate lessons, uh, school, work. All these things can be good, but we can pile too much upon ourselves so that we don't have time to do the things that are really important. And if you find yourself being entangled by all these different things, they may be all good. But if they're prohibiting you from doing the things you really need to do, you've got to jettison something. Something's got to go. Simplify. So, jettison, weights that hinder. And then lastly, keep in mind your influence, whether it's before saint or sinner. Your influence is very valuable, as we've discussed already. So now, on this last slide, I want to, uh, in this section, I want us to, to consider this self-examination checklist. We've gone through all these things. And I don't know about you, but at least in my own mind, I have a tendency to say, okay, I understand that. I got that. That's good. And I can easily move on and really kind of forget and not apply what I've just learned and what I've just read. So what I like to do is have questions. Because you can't get away from questions. Statements you can dismiss. But questions demand an answer. You have to give an answer. And that causes you to think. So... Here's some questions that in some ways they're just rephrasing what we just said. So we're just going to run through these real quick. List your priorities in order. Don't just give me a group, but in your mind as you're dealing with these tough decisions, list your priorities in order. What's number one? What's number two? What's number three? What's the most important things? Are you praying, studying, meditating? Are you seeking God's wisdom? If you're not, maybe you need to go back to step number one and talk about what your first priority is. Have you considered Bible examples? Have you sought godly counselors? Whose approval are you seeking? Are you trying to please God or are you trying to please somebody else? Your parents, yourself, some other man. Who are you trying to please? Are you having trouble making up your mind? Are you resolved or are you double-minded? Again, if you're having trouble with this, maybe we need to go back and look at step number one. Now, have you estimated the possible sacrifices? this is the thing where our brains start shutting down. Okay, I want to be a Christian. I want to do this. This is right. But then we start thinking about the sacrifices that may come along the line and we stop. We don't want to think about that. We don't want to deal with that. We'll deal with that when we get there. No, we want to deal with it right now. Doing your homework early, being prepared, that's the key to overcoming temptation. So estimate the possible sacrifices. Make detailed plans. What are you going to have to tell this person when they ask you, hey, come with us and do this, this, and this? Have you got an answer ready? Make that up ahead of time. What are they going to say in response? What are you going to say in response? You can anticipate a lot of those things and have those answers and those thoughts already ready. So when you're put on the spot, it just comes out naturally and easily and you don't have to think about it and you won't make the wrong decision because you've already made the right decision in advance. Make detailed plans. Are you avoiding temptation? Are you setting yourself up for fall? Are you surrounding yourself with encouraging influences? On the other side, is what you're doing maybe okay, but is it diminishing your influence, your ability to affect other people? Are you entangling yourself in the affairs of this life? Again, things that are okay, things that are good, but is it the best use of your time? And then lastly, are you being honest with yourself? So here we are at our three questions. We've talked about choosing wisdom. We've talked about the ultimate decision. And now we have this little checklist in hand. And you almost kind of want to keep this checklist with you as we go through these last two questions and keep this before you because this is going to be the foundation of how we answer these other questions that are coming up. So, godly companions and spouse. Checklist. Brother Wayne mentioned this earlier. Remember Joshua and the Gibeonites? These people came to him and said, we want to be friends. And they had on these raggedy clothes and this old bread and this old drink and their beards were all grown out and they said, oh, we've come from a far away country. We're no threat to you. Let's be friends. No, they were right down the road. They had tricked them. They came in all these clothes and all this food, but that was not who they were. And the problem was, and the lesson is, Joshua failed to check with God before he just went and just gut reacted and said, yeah, we'll make a covenant with you guys. No problem. He took their word for it. That was a mistake. He didn't consult with God. Big mistake. So, in the topic of friends, let's see what God has to say. Our friends have tremendous influence on us. Evil companions will corrupt us. Take a minute with this verse. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Two things I want us to mention here and notice. Does any of your Bibles have the word generally or possibly or probably or most likely? No. What does it say? Evil companions will corrupt good habits. Period. This is a definite thing. There's no possibility. There's no maybe to it. There's probably somebody saying, yes, yes, but that applies to everybody else. I'm tougher. I'm stronger. That's not me. Well, the first part of the verse says, do not be deceived. That's kind of God's way of almost tapping you on the forehead and saying, hello, wake up. I'm talking to you. You are the one that I have in mind. If you think you can handle this, and you are the very one that's in trouble. Do not be deceived. Evil company will corrupt good habits. The righteous should choose his friends carefully, for the way of the wicked leads them astray. But it's not all bad. There's good to be had too. He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companions of fools will be destroyed. So evil companions will corrupt us, but wise friends will strengthen us. They will encourage us. They will bring us closer to God. So this kind of sets up a predicament. We're supposed to avoid bad friends, supposed to find good friends. What are we going to do? Are we going to form like this uh, monk-like community and isolate ourselves from the world? No. That's not what we're supposed to do. We can't isolate ourselves from the world. Paul says that very clearly in 1 Corinthians 5. So what's the conclusion? Well, if it's a frequent, intimate, close relationship of our best friend, then it's got to be somebody that's a good influence. It's got to be somebody that's going to help us get to heaven. Um, this is a great passage on this point. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And the idea of this unequally yoked is like a horse and a cow in the same yoke. And they're both trying to till the field. Well, it's not going to work. They have different gates. It's either going to go off to the side or if they're forced to walk in a straight line, one of the animals is going to get hurt. It's not going to work. In fact, it was a command not to do that to the animals in the Old Testament. And Paul's using that as a symbol here. Spiritually, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial or Baal? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. So, we need to avoid those kinds of relationships. And, but yet, we should welcome the opportunity to have uh, contact and influence on other people. Uh, as has been said earlier, we can go to one extreme either way. We need to be careful of that. So, just for example, think about Paul, Barnabas, and Timothy. These men that encouraged each other. Uh, Titus, we could go on and on. Uh, Demas, other people that were listed throughout the New Testament that were companions that went on these missionary journeys together. But they weren't always good. Take Demas, for example. Paul at one point had to cut ties with Demas and had to leave him behind. And because he was not the kind of friend that he needed to be. So application, are your friends like these? Like a Paul, a Barnabas, or Timothy? Well, we would be so lucky to have the opportunity to have friends like that. But are they good friends? Are they good influences? And then just as a modern application, what about virtual friends? You know, videos, um, all kinds of things available on the Internet, chat, texting. Uh, there's more than just face-to-face friends, right? And there's a lot of friends that you probably have that you've never seen before. Uh, Facebook and MySpace, all those places afford opportunities to make social contact and influence each other even though you may never actually see each other. Those all apply as well. So, now we're to the last half of this part. So, who to marry? This is the second most important decision of your life. Why? Well, if you pick the wrong friends, what can you do? That's right. You get new friends, right? If you pick the wrong job, what can you do? You can leave. You can quit. You can find a new job. You get the wrong city, what can you do? You move to a new city, Right? What about marriage? Brother Smith talked about this. Can't get a new wife. Can't get a new husband. He didn't use this word, but I will. You're stuck. When you make that decision, you're stuck. You said, I do. Now, again, that can be a good thing. It can be a bad thing. It depends on who you're stuck with. So, that's what we want to talk about. Everything we've said up to this point about friends, it applies here. Because... What greater friends, what greater influence are you going to have besides your spouse? If it applies in the lesser, it applies even more in the greater. As you have, because there will never be another friend that is better or a longer lasting influence. I think we've looked at some of these passages and Brother Smith mentioned this as well earlier. How, Amos 3.3, how can two walk together unless they agree? So, let's go back to our checklist. Let's remember. Let's go back to the Scriptures and see what God has to say. The answer to this question, I think one of the keys to this problem is to realize that it's a heart problem. It's a heart issue. Brother Smith did a great job of answering, well, what about being married to a non-Christian? 1 Corinthians 7 makes that clear. If you're married to a non-Christian, you stick it out. You make it work. You try to use that as an opportunity to influence and do good. What about the children? I mean, if you pull out, what's going to happen to those kids? You stick it out and you make it work. Being married to a non-Christian, what do you do? Scripture is very clear. But there's another question I want us to consider for this moment, which is the question that's before you. First Corinthians 7, 1 Peter 3, all those passages were written to people that were already married to non-Christians. They were not young people trying to decide whether or not to marry a non-Christian. It's two separate questions, two separate issues. Because those people were converted out of the world. They didn't have a choice. You do. You're thinking about this now. It's a question of the heart. Who do you love? Way back in the Old Testament, God had a very specific command. They were not to marry people outside of Israel. It's very different today. We do not have any such command that says, you will not marry. But I want you to notice what He says even back in the Old Testament. Therefore, take careful heed to yourselves that you love the Lord your God. Or else, if you don't love Him, what may happen? You may go back. All these people you're supposed to be displacing out of the land. If you don't love the Lord, you may go back and you may marry some of them. You may make marriages with them. And go into them, they into you. And if you do, know for certain, they will be snares and traps to you. Scourges on your sides and thorns in your eyes. Notice, what is the key? What is the fundamental problem? What broke down? It was a lack of love for God. Luke 14:26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father mother, wife and children... This is parallel to a verse that Brother Jeff wrote up earlier. Brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Matthew 6.33 we mentioned already. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Who do you love? What is your priority? Remember, that was on our checklist, point number one. Now, recall Bible examples. And Again, this was read earlier. But King Solomon loved many foreign women, and his wives turned away his heart. For it was so when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart away after God's. I want you to notice, when was Solomon turned away? Did he marry these women and then just become a pagan and idolatrous person? No. It took time. It took years of wearing him down slowly but surely. This is not something that just happens all at once and you just make this decision and your life's in shambles. No. Remember the first verse. That path, it shines brighter, and brighter and brighter. As time goes by, it becomes more apparent that what is the right decision. It's not always obvious at first. So that's bad. What's good? Think about Ruth. This is, I think, an incredible verse. Ruth says, uh, she said to Naomi, "'Entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. And your people will be My people.' And your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. The Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. Now, she said this to her mother-in-law, not to her spouse. Not to the man that she was going to marry. But this woman had tremendous love. And this love was easily transferred to her husband, to Boaz that she married in fact, when, uh, when I got married, my wife had a plaque. And these were the very words that were written on it that she gave to me. It's an incredible thought to think about somebody expressing this to you. But I want you to notice, they, Ruth said, and your God will be my God. If somebody truly loves you, they understand you, and they respect you, they will love what you love truly. If they don't, they either don't understand you, they don't love you, or you've miscommunicated who you are to them. If something is paramount to you, whoever marries you, it's going to be paramount to them. If it's the most important to you, if they truly love you, or unless you've miscommunicated yourself to to them. Think about this. If someone marries uh, someone who's not a Christian or has different religious beliefs, or maybe they look at the inspiration of the Bible different, if you have these major incompatibilities, how is this going to work? Wives, submit yourself to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave Himself for. If you're husband and wife and you're having difficulties and you both believe in the Bible and you both take it as a standard and you're having trouble, you can sit down together and talk it out and look at these verses and say, how can we be a better husband and wife? But what if one of them doesn't believe in the Bible? What are you going to tell them? What are you going to give to them to persuade them to say, please, let's work on this. Let's make this work. You can't you don't have a basis, you don't have a common standard or a common ground. You're if you'll let me say this, you're a completely different animal than the other person. You're in a yoke, the same yoke, but you're completely different walking at different speeds, looking at different things. So how is that going to work? Well, it's not. Well, what about this? Women, as you think about the man that you're going to pick to be your husband. Remember this verse Fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Brother Jeff brought out earlier. How can they do that if they don't even understand who the Lord is? They're going to be teaching your kids something. What are they going to be teaching them? Men, what about your, your wives? Admonish the young women to stay at home, be homemakers, love their children, do all these things. But what if the wife doesn't believe in the Bible? What if she doesn't believe that's the, the man's place? What is she going to be teaching your kids while you're at work? She's going to be teaching them something. Is she going to be bringing them closer to God? So it's not just yourself you're you're thinking about. You've got to also think about your children. One of the examples that's in your handout that we didn't mention is the case of Jehoshaphat and his son Jehoram. It's a very powerful case if you take the time to go through all the verses and put the whole story together. Jehoshaphat was a great king. He was a very good man. But yet he had a problem. The Bible says that he allied himself by marriage to the king of Israel through marriage, it was a very wicked king. So he had this alliance to something that was very evil. And you see prophets coming and speaking to him and saying, what are you doing? Look at who you are. How can you be accompanied with this other person? You need to separate yourself. And if you don't, bad things are going to happen. Well, bad things did happen to Jehoshaphat. He had entire fleets of ships that were wiped out. But eventually, Jehoshaphat got his act together. And later in life, he distanced himself and when these people try to do things together with him, no, he said, no, no, we're separate. We're not going to do this. But the interesting thing is, is Jehoshaphat dies, And then we find out the real damage of his decision. His son was married to Ahab's daughter, to the northern king. It was his son that he had used to make the alliance to evil. And he was evil. Jehoram was wicked as they come. So Jehoshaphat, he got out of that situation, but his son didn't. And that's probably the greatest tragedy of this decision that is often overlooked. People go into, I'm strong. I can take it. I can handle it. What about your kids? What's going to happen to your kids? Statistics aren't pretty. Okay, so let's. we've talked about bad. Let's talk about good. What is God's ideal for the woman and for the man? Proverbs 31, fantastic passage. You should spend your time looking at it to see for the men... This is the ideal. This is what you're looking for. This is just a summary, so don't don't take this as something golden here. But she fears God. She's trustworthy. She does good always for her husband. Not on occasion. Sometimes she does good. Sometimes she does bad. No, he trusts in her because she does good always. She's hardworking, prepared, strong, generous, honorable, wise, kind, praiseworthy. On the flip side, what about the man? Young women, who are you looking for in a husband? Well, this is who God set up for you here in Job 31. Again, someone who fears God. He's chaste. He's made a covenant with his eyes. He's not always looking at girls, other girls, and checking them out. He already has his girl. And he doesn't need to look anymore. He's honest. He's a man of integrity, of pure intentions. He's just. He defends the fatherless and the widow. He's generous. He's helping. He's not greedy. He's not superstitious. He's not inclined to go after false gods. In fact, he loves his enemies. He's willing he doesn't want to see them destroyed, he wants to help them and see them become good. And he admits error, which I think is an important point because men are supposed to be the leaders of the house. If they're unwilling to admit the error that they've made, then how are you possibly going to go in the right direction? So you need to choose a true leader or helper helper. We've talked about some very important issues. And there's other issues that are also important. We can't even begin to go through all the things that are important. But here's just a few others that I'll mention to you very quickly. Modesty. Other moral concerns. Again, your spouse is 50-50 as far as how much teaching and how much influence you're going to have on your kids. They're going to have a lot of influence just like you're going to have a lot of influence. What are they going to be teaching them? Do they share the same morals about modesty or about whatever? What about discipline of children? There's different methods, different techniques. Some are from the Scripture. Some are from doctors that you see today, scholars of men. What do they believe? It's a lot easier to figure that out before you get married rather than afterwards and and you've got a child that needs to be disciplined. And then, do not marry a sluggard or slob, somebody that's just absolutely lazy. Proverbs talks about the people that send a man to do a job and he's lazy. It's like smoke in their eyes is like the worst thing. It's just, well imagine if you're the wife and you marry to a sluggard. It's the man's job to do work. And if he's not hard working and industrious before marriage, you can bet he's probably not going to be hard working and industrious after you get married. That's something that you want to see before you get married. Flip side. Well, what is the woman's role? To be at home, to take care of the children. If she doesn't care about the home, she doesn't care about herself, she doesn't like kids, that's not going to work out well after you get married. It's not going to get better. So these are things that can be overcome, but certainly if you deal with them before you get married and talk about them, then they are far, far easier. And then lastly, one piece of advice, do not be desperate to marry. There is not a passage in the Bible that says you are absolutely guaranteed to get married. In fact, there was a lot of people in the Bible that never got married. They were told, you're not going to get married. That's your, that's your lot in life. Now, of course, a lot of these people were prophets like Jeremiah. Even from the womb, he was given that task that he wasn't going to be allowed to get married. That He had to focus on the Lord's work. Paul, he did that voluntarily. But Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 said that because of that time, because of those circumstances, they would be happier if they weren't married. So there may be situations where you're actually better off not being married. So certainly, it's not a guarantee. Don't be thinking, well, if I don't get married to this person, then that's it. This is my last chance. Don't be desperate. Don't fall in love with being in love. You need to make make sure that you find a person that matches God's ideal. I won't spend a lot of time here. Eric did a fantastic job here. But I think it's worth mentioning because it fits in well with what we're talking about. Decide early about express levels of affection. Fleeing youthful lusts. Uh, again, this flight versus the fight mentality. Don't get anywhere close to it. And this is an incredible and powerful point. But yet at the same time, you need to know that the Bible does set up certain boundaries. There are certain things that are clearly defined as belonging to marriage. And there's examples of things that are okay outside of marriage. Don't have time to go into that. And then frankly, it, depending on your age, this is something that you either need to study yourself or you need to study with your parents. Song of Solomon, another great book that Jeff mentioned earlier, it goes through some examples of some expression of physical affection, whether it's writing or speaking. I'm not going to get into the details of that. That's, that's up for you to look at. But I want you to know there's some things that are clearly defined as being belonging to marriage, and they are not to be outside of marriage. Uh, Solomon, in, in this song. he describes the beauty of his wife on the night of their marriage before they've had any time together. It's a very clear and obvious description. Later, after they've been married for a while, he has a completely different description. The difference between those two lists clearly say this belongs to marriage, this is what's obvious and what's evident and is okay outside of marriage. Another verse that Jeff mentioned earlier, do not awaken love before it's time. Both of the times that you find this, the first two times that you find this, it's related to them expressing their affection. Clearly there's some struggle They're dealing with this temptation and they're backing off. She's backing off, saying, speaking to the daughter, saying, don't awaken love, don't stir up love before it's time. It's something you have to be careful about. And again, if you have any doubt, use Eric's advice, the advice of Scripture. Flee. Stay far away. You don't want to get up as close as you can to these boundaries. But no, there are certainly boundaries you are not to go across. So lastly, leaving home. Talking about picking a good school and career. Again, what about our checklist? Remember Abraham? What was he interested in? What was Lot interested in? You remember when they came to that, that plane of decision? Abraham went one way. What was Lot interested in? He looked at the plains of Sodom and Gomorrah. He was looking for the most beautiful place where he could raise his flocks and it would be the most profitable place for him. But Abraham, he wondered, he moved from place to place as God directed him. He was a spiritually motivated man. So in the same way, we want to ask these same kinds of questions. And first of all, I want to think about school or maybe jobs. Most schools or most jobs are amoral. What that means is they're not right and they're not wrong. They're innocent in and of themselves. But certain schools or certain jobs, they seem to attract certain kinds of people. So incidentally, the environment may provide either lots of encouragement or it may provide lots of temptation. So you need to be aware of that and go into any situation with your eyes open and find out ahead of time, what kind of school, what kind of job is this? What kind of people am I going to be around if I make this decision? And there's other factors to decide. is, is you're looking at a school or you're thinking about a job, you're going to be going to some place that's not your home. So that means you're going to be worshiping in a different congregation. Now there's some things, these are just kind of common sense questions that I've got here for you to think about. Will the local congregation be helpful or will it be discouraging? Have you visited the local church? Have you just heard from some friends there's a good church here and you're taking their word for it? Or have you personally visited the church and checked it out yourself? What about the teaching they're going to offer you? Is it going to be the truth? Think about everything that uh, Tracy talked about earlier. Why do they do the things they do? Are they doing it just out of tradition? Or are they doing it because they love the Lord and they're following the Bible? They're following God's Word. Have you checked to see if there will be any potential for godly companions? You don't want to move out into the middle of nowhere and have no friends and have nobody that's anywhere remotely close to your age that can be a good influence. And if there are people there, I've known of people that have moved to cities and they think it's a great place, but then they get to know the people and they realize, these guys are all hypocrites. They're not true Christians. And then it becomes an incredibly stressful and discouraging environment for that person. So you want to just take a little bit of time. Don't just... Make a snap decision and say, oh yeah, it's fine, it's good. No, we're talking about the next stage of your life, so you want to spend some time and invest and make sure you're right. Have you talked to other people about this congregation? Preachers travel, do gospel meetings from place to place. You'd be surprised. You check around a little bit. You probably know somebody who knows somebody at that congregation, and they can give you some input and some counsel on this other church. It's worth checking out. And if, if you go there, have you observed brotherly love? If you don't show up to church at this one you're thinking about, is anybody going to notice? Are they going to care? Are they going to call and check on you and make sure you're okay? Are they going to be concerned about you? Or are you going to go and then just boom, slip into the void and nobody even know that you're there or not there? Who is that person? What's their name? I don't know. What kind of congregation is it going to be? And then Tracy spent uh, made a great point about how worship is not for us. It's primarily for God. But yet... We're supposed to get something out of worship as well, too, right? Spiritual things, not carnal things. We're supposed to get spiritual edification. Remember, seeing to each other in love, admonishing one another. Are you going to grow with this congregation? Is there opportunities for you to grow? This is kind of a secondary point. Not as important as some of the other ones, but it's, it's important nonetheless. So thinking about the work itself. Colossians three twenty two through 24 Bond servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but in what? Sincerity of heart. Fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of your inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. So who are you working for? You're working for God, right? Your boss may not be looking. Nobody may be looking. But... God always sees. And so you need to pick a job where you can display a zealous work ethic in this field. I'm not talking about finding something that you like. You need to find something where you can work hard and do a good job at it. In fact, many of the contacts that you're going to make religiously outside of of school is going to be through work. If you're a lazy slob at work, that's going to do terrible things for your influence and for your opportunity to evangelize and to reach out to other people. But if they see if you're industrious and hardworking, and when the boss is not looking, everybody else pushes it back and takes it easy, but you keep on going and you keep working hard and you keep doing your best, it's going to say a lot and you're going to make an impression on other people. But what about this? What about the career field? Is it going to demand long hours? What about frequent travel? Think about the passages we saw earlier about fathers raising up their children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And then Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 9, talks about parents teaching their children and they're getting up and they're getting down and they're going out and they're coming in. They're supposed to be always teaching. But what if they're not there? What if you pick a job that makes you where you're always gone? How are you going to do your job as a parent? It's much more important to think about that ahead of time so you can have a job where you can raise your kids and be an influence than to get yourself stuck in a career where you can't. What about adequate income? Again, the emphasis on the word adequate. In Ecclesiastes 7.12, the wise man says there that money is a defense. Just like wisdom is a defense. It's good. It can help you. But you've got to balance that thought. Don't go overboard. We don't want to become ambitious and greedy people. Remember 1 Timothy 6.6-10 and Luke 12.15. Your life does not consist of what you possess. It's not these carnal things and amassing them that's important to you. And the people that seek after money, and that's their goal, and that's their aim, Paul made it clear to Timothy, they're going to be pierced through in their heart with many sorrows. And so they are not going to find happiness. They're not going to find peace or joy. It is not wise. So, pick a job. You don't want to pick a job where you can't support your family. Or, girls, what about if the husband dies and you're left having to take care of the family? Will you have means to do so? You need to think about those kinds of things. Will you be able to take care of them? Or what if you're not able to find someone to marry? Will you have a situation where you can take care of yourself? But again, don't go too far either. And again, who are you working for? Ephesians 4.28 says, Let him that stole steal no more, so that he can have some to give to those who are without or who are in need. You work to provide for yourself, to bring food to yourself, to take care of your family. But there's something higher, something nobler, a better reason that is also should be included and should be the reason why you work. You work so you can do good. So you can take care of other people. So you can help other people. Because there will be times in everybody's life where they're going to be without. And if you're lazy, and if you're not working hard, and here's your brother, they lost their job, and they need food, and they need help, you're not going to be able to help them. You're not going to be able to do good. And... And there will be nothing you can do about it at that point, And you will feel horrible. So think about that as well. And lastly on this, you may have to move again. This is kind of a point we made earlier. If you find yourself in the wrong city, you may have to move again. It happened to me. I went and found a place for my family that I thought would be good. But after I was there for a while, I figured out that the environment of that city and my specific personality were not going to work well. And that city was going to grind me up. I was, and so I had to move. I had to find some place different, a different work environment, so I could be the father and the husband that I needed to be. So you may have to move. And if you can't find what you need to provide for your family, pick up and move. And you may have to do it again. So, conclusion. Here's our three questions. Three most important decisions that you're going to have to deal with. Are you seeking to make wise decisions? Really. Prove it to yourself. Consider the checklist. Ask yourself these questions that we looked at earlier. Examine yourself. Don't just pass by this quickly and dismiss it out of hand. Really meditate on this and think about it. What is your reaction to this study? Does it make you angry? You think, ah, I don't need this. Remember Proverbs fourteen sixteen About the fool, he rages and he's self-confident. But the wise... They fear and they depart from evil. Wise decisions are more difficult for the short term. This was mentioned earlier. You may suffer persecution. You may find that people make fun of you. Like, why are you doing that? Why are you making that decision? That's silly. Ah, he's just overboard. In the short life that I had, I had a lot of different friends at different schools, different cities that I had been. got made fun of for making decisions that I thought were important. And a lot of these people that made fun of me They're suffering from broken marriages. They're having trouble with their work. They're having lots of problems. At the time, at the moment, it was a source of ridicule and it was a source of making fun. And it seemed like everybody was the same. What was the point? What was the big deal? But remember our verse from earlier. The wisdom of godly decisions shines ever brighter into that perfect day. If you make the right decisions, then as time goes by, it's going to become more apparent to you yourself, you'll become more confident in the decision that you made, but then it's going to become more apparent to everybody else that these are the right decisions. On many future days, still yet to come, you will thank the Lord for the wisdom that He has made available to you. If you have chosen to follow God's counsel, get wisdom. Get understanding. Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom, and in all you're getting, get understanding. Keep her, for she is your life. So, just review. Three questions, three answers. Seek God and His wisdom first. Choose a spouse and friends that will help you to heaven. Find a job and career that will help you and your family grow in God. Any questions? I think the other guys have made this comment several times before. A lot more material in the book than we had time to go through. You have website, email address. You know, nose tackle me after the class. If you got questions, let me know. Talk to me. Be glad to talk about anything that we've discussed here by whatever, whatever means is comfortable for you. Any questions? Thank you for your time and your attention this time.